This will be side number two, the second half an hour of my tape with reference to the... While I'm talking about the Bartholomew family, I have been very endeared to them through the years for some other incidences. One of them in particular that stands out in my mind, and this is the main one really, there's a Mr. E.C. Bartholomew who was Jane's father. He was cashier of the Austin National Bank for years, and in 1936 or 37, right in that era, he was on the city council of the city of Austin. And on the council with him was uh, uh, Mr. Simon Gillis, and Tom Miller was the mayor, and Mr. Alford was there, and Mr. Uh, Otto Wolf probably was a member of the council, and then uh, uh, Guyton Morgan was the city manager. But in uh, that year, 36 or 37, it uh, became eminent that the Tom Miller Dam, which was not called the Tom Miller Dam at that time, was going to was going to be rehabilitated by the Roosevelt administration through Harry Hopkins' programs. It was going to redo all the dams up and down the lake and, and make it a, a paradise, which it has finally become. But anyway, the, uh, I learned about that, and there was a 200-acre tract of land that lied just west of the dam and named the Storter Tract. And I had made some uh, investigations and gotten a contract out of Storter Harris to let me buy it for $2,000. And... Uh, then uh, immediately thereafter, the city of Austin knew that the dam was going to be rebuilt, and, and they started pushing that, and they started looking around about uh, how they was going to get the dam site on the west side. They didn't own it at that time. There was a strip of land about, I guess, 50 feet wide from the west end of the Tom Miller Dam. It's now I call it Tom Miller Dam. Then it was called the Austin Dam. But about 50 feet wide between the river and my, my land, the Strother Land. And I had been up on a mountain about a half a mile west of there, Mount Strode, they called it, and I'd taken a compass, and I'd sighted down what I thought was my line. There were no fences in there then. And I figured that my corner was about 150, 200 feet south of the dam site. And so uh, I, I contacted the city of Austin. They, they found out that I had this contract to buy the land, and, and I told them that I would sell them the, the 25 acres, including the dam site, and going on back up to the mouth of Bee Creek and and around the Little Bee Creek and give them quite a little piece of land in there for, for $1,500. That was uh, nearly all that I was going to pay for the whole 200 acres. But anyway, they were a little cautious, and their city manager decided that maybe we ought to, ought to buy this tract of land that was a little south called the James Tract. Now, this, uh, this, these discussions all took place in, in the city council meeting. And I was up there with them discussing about the terrain out there and, and what land they might need because they didn't know. The city manager didn't know anything about that land, and I was the only one that could read and write that had been over in that area. And so, and I was buying it, and they they figured I knew what I was talking about. So, uh, we had this council meeting, and it so happened as I, I mentioned the names of the people who who were on the council. And Mr. Simon Gillis at that time was a, my son had married his daughter, and then later on my nephew married Tom Miller's daughter. But at that time they was a whiz dealing at, at arm's length, and so. Uh, uh, they decided that uh, they knew that this fellow named James, Lee B. James, owned 110 acres of land that lay just south of the Stroder land. And uh, the Henry P. Hill League line run north and south, uh, 30 degrees off of it, there on the east side, and, and that was right on the edge of the, uh, of the dam, the west end of the dam. So they decided it would be better for the city of Austin not to contact Mr. James directly because he had smelled a rat and decided he was going to get a whole lot more money than the land is worth. And so they they conceived the idea, and we, we plotted there in the city council meeting to send me down to, to Brownsville to act as a, an individual and buy this land in my name, and I'd uh, uh, then transfer it to the city of Austin. The city of Austin put up the money that we had to, to use to buy it with. And so that was the deal. They commissioned me to be their agent to go down to Brownsville. 
I remember the occasion. I went down there and I uh, rode down one day. It's it an all-day trip to Brownsville then. And I drove down there and uh, Mr. I found out that Mr. James's office was in the lobby of the El Hardin Hotel. And I got a room on the hotel across the street. And early the next morning at 8 o'clock, I was over there uh, to see Mr. James. I didn't even go across the water the night before because I wanted my wits to be sharp when I made this trade with this man. So I got in the lobby, and when I got there, well, James had already at work. He had a roll-top desk, and he had somebody sitting in a chair there right next to his chair, and they were talking business deals of some kind. And it was just like a bank lobby. You could sit in there and listen to everything that they were taking place. And so while I was sitting there listening to what conversation he had with this other man about some kind of a real estate deal, I noticed that he had a, a, a San Antonio Express on his desk of that day. And it opened the front page, and it, on the left-hand column, in those days there was a thank, they called a thank column, and it was an editorial written by somebody uh, in the editorial staff of the San Antonio Express. And that whole column was given over to the value that was going to be placed on, these, uh, on the land along the Colorado River when they started building these dams. Well, I could have seen that for a half mile off and read it. I, my eyes wasn't bad in those days, but I, I got to looking at that, and I thought to myself, I said, if that old boy's read that editorial, I'm not going to buy this land. And if he hadn't, i better get in the saddle right now and get him to sign something. So as soon as the other client got up and left Mr. James's chair, well, I jumped over there and I started to tell him I introduced myself and told him who I was because I hadn't made a date. And it was just out of a blue sky. And so I told him that I was a rancher up there uh, uh, in west of Austin and that I owned some land that I thought uh, joined some land that he owned and I needed to get some land to get out to the river for my stock, my cattle to get out to the river. Well... Uh, of course, his land didn't uh, wasn't within a quarter of a mile of the river, but uh, he didn't tell me that, and I don't know whether he didn't know it or whether he just didn't want me to know it. But I figured that a man that had that land, he he he's lying or he didn't know enough about his land to know know what it's worth. But that uh, we took, I took my gloves off. Side I wasn't that he's either trying to cheat me or I, I didn't owe him any 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 uh, obligation to tell him what's going to happen to that land up there and who I was representing. So. We got to talking, and I told him that I thought it was located in such a way that it had helped me in my ranching operations, and I told him that I had talked to my banker before I left Austin, and I was prepared to offer him $2,000 cash for his 110 acres there. That's what we estimated it to be, and I gathered from the way he's talking that he had taken it in on a trade and didn't know where it was, or that he had taken it in on a foreclosure from the McCullough Land and Cattle Company, but anyway, he was not knowledgeable of, of his land. And so uh, we talked a little while, and he said, no, he said, uh, that land is, is, is worth every bit of $2,500. Well, he was the type of a trader. I knew that it wasn't going to take whatever I offered him, So, but I had a limit. I didn't have any better sense than to offer him the top of my limit to start with. If I'd have offered him $1,500, I guess I could have gotten it for 2000 But because I'm satisfied he didn't have $500 in it. Uh, now I'm satisfied of that. But... He, uh, he said no, said he'd have to take $2,500. Well, I was so nervous about that newspaper being on his desk that I wasn't in a good trading mood, really. And so I told him that, well, uh, that's my limit, and I'd have to go over and talk to my banker, and I'd do that. I'd go over and talk uh, to him over the phone and see if he'd let me have another $500 if Mr. James had sat it for that. And so uh, he said uh, to go on and make the trade, and, uh, I mean, make the call, and if I could get $2,500, well, he'd, he'd let me have it. So I said to myself on the way over to the uh, hotel, that if he reads that newspaper, that trades off, that is oil, and he's not going to stick by it. But uh, I got on the phone, and instead of calling the city manager, I called Tom Miller, the mayor, because I knew Tom was going to be the, make the final decision. So I called Tom and told him about my conversation and about that newspaper laying on the desk, and I told him that if 
he, old James read that newspaper before I got back over there. We wasn't going to buy that land for $5,000, and he better give me a little bit of leverage to buy that land from from Mr. James. So Tom said, well, go on back, and, and you can you can spend $2,500, but the last word Tom said said, don't let him get away. So I figured I had a little more leverage than 2500 if I needed it. So I went back over there, and sure enough, somebody jumped in James's chair where I jumped up, and he hadn't had a chance to read the newspaper. And he looked at me like he was waiting for me to come back. He just he had he had a, a pigeon on the ground there, so he he drew up a little contract right quick there for twenty five hundred cash, and I let him have a check for uh, whatever it was fifty hundred dollars to bind the deal and sign the contract, and then I took out. And so I come on back to Austin, and and uh, about two days after that, I got a letter from him, and I still have that in my files, uh, telling me how what a nice relationship we had had and. And that he appreciated the, the deal, and he'd be uh, he's going to send his draft through with the deed immediately, and uh, uh, and I know then that he'd never read that newspaper, and I don't guess he ever read it to the day of his death. But anyway, uh, then we had to sit down with the city of Austin and find out where our lines were. So the city manager uh, had the share had the surveyor's department go out and survey the line between the Stroder tract and and the James tract, and sure enough, it's just like my compass showed it. My my line, my corner was at least 200 feet south of the dam, and the James tract didn't didn't touch the dam site, and it wasn't really necessary for them to, to own that uh, in order to rehabilitate the dam. Well, uh, when that report came back, and it took a month or so for it to come back, in the meantime, uh, we was holding in the bands, we surveyed the James tract out. So we hadn't surveyed it out enough to where I could go ahead and give my deed to the city of Austin. In the meantime, I had gotten a deed from Mr. James, and the city of Austin had put the money up through the American National Bank and paid for it. And there I was sitting without anything in writing, and I own the James track. I've gone through a lot of deals like that with my partners, and the city was my partner in that instance. But anyway, we, uh, when they had the survey out and found out where the lines were, well, they had a special meeting on an executive session of the city council. Well, uh, the same group were there. Mr. Bartholomew was there, and Mr. Gillis, and Tom Miller, and the mayor, and I mean, and the, and the city manager. So, uh, uh, Guyton Morgan, the city manager, uh, started talking about this James tract, 110 acres there, and it was no value to the city of Austin now that, since it wasn't a part of the dam site, and it, it is isolated and not good for anything. And he started to mouth and around a little bit about it. And Guyton, a close personal friend of mine, but he's trying to he's trying to justify the expenditure of $2,500 at the old man James and about 150 to me because I got a 5% commission and, and my expenses down there. And he's trying to justify before the city council the fact that the city was going to be out about $2,600 to $2,700 and the piece of land was of questionable value. And so uh, he went on that a little bit and Mr. Bartholomew finally come to my rescue. I knew that, that, that they were trying to put something over on me. And so Mr. Bartholomew said, now let me tell you people something. Talking to Guyton particularly, said, I was here when y'all uh, authorized him to go down there and buy this track from you. He told you then that, that he thought he owned the dam site and that he had already made a contract to sell it to you and that you didn't need a James track, but that he'd go down there and that we was going to buy it out of an abundance of caution. But he said, now, uh, I know that's true. I was here and heard it. But he said, now, if you men on this council feel like the city of Austin's been overreached, or if y'all feel like you've made a bad deal, you just figure out every nickel that the city of Austin's got in this deal, counting the 5% commission to Emmett and his expenses down there, I'll write you out a check for it right now. And instead of Emmett deeding this land to the city of Austin, as we agreed to, he'll just deed it to me and I'll give you the money back. Well, they knew that Mr. Bartholomew had not gotten rich and not gotten in a position he is in by acting foolish. And there he was buying a piece of land. He didn't see, didn't know, didn't know a thing in the world about it. But he could envisage what was going to happen. 
And so they backed off, and they decided maybe they hadn't made such a bad deal. And if you will go back and, uh, and think of those days and think about where that land is now with Redbud Trail running through it, the filtration plant being on it, you've got a piece of land that's worth at least a quarter of a million dollars that they got for about $2,500. And it wasn't. I remember when Mr. Foles was president of the bank that he and George Lacey did a lot of hunting. And uh, George was a, a teller or something in the bank, a clerk of some kind, and he was a close personal friend, of course, of Mr. Foltz. And, and uh, uh, Mr. Foltz's son, I knew him better than I did any of the others, but uh, he'd run around with us, and he is a, he is a hellraiser. And, but uh, George was, a, was just a sort of a, a, a handyman for Mr. Foltz, and they just loved each other. He treated George more like his son than he did his own son. And they'd go up to the uh, hunting on the Walsh Boys' place at Round Rock. And Polk and I represented the, the Walsh boys in some of their businesses. And, and they owned the, what was now called the Davenport Ranch over next to my ranch in Westlake Hills. I had uh, three sides of the Walsh Ranch. And actually the Walsh boys didn't know where the lines were on their land. And when they sold their thousand acres up there to Mrs. Davenport, they didn't know where the lines were. And they asked me to go out and show it to Mrs. Davenport. And that I did. But uh, Mr. Foles was a, a real fine man. I never did borrow any money from him. I didn't know him well enough, or I would have gone in. I really don't know who I was born from in those days. But I want to tell one story here about one of the present directors, or recent directors of the Austin National, and Mr. Tom Davis. Old Taylor Glass, when uh, the first, Second World War started, well, Taylor was helting uh, uh, and skeleton around, trying to make a living, selling ice cream. And, and he had, uh, I believe that, maybe it already been a, the um, mayor of the city of Austin, but I'm not sure. But Taylor was telling me this story. He said that, that uh, he got a contract to furnish all the ice cream for the for Camp Swift down at Bastrop. And it took quite a little bit of equipment to do it. And he'd uh, made arrangements to buy this equipment. And he'd come in to talk to Mr. Tom Davis about borrowing the money to, to put him up in business to fulfill this contract with the government on Camp Swift. And he said he went to great detail, showing him all the different pieces of equipment, how much it cost, and said Mr. Davis was very patient with him and let him go on through with it. And he got the, the note out that, uh, that Taylor was going to sign, and uh, he'd already made up his mind he'd going to loan the money to Taylor. And then when Taylor run down from telling about all the fine uh, security he's putting up, Mr. Davis just made this remark to him. He said, Taylor, he said, I'm not looking to that equipment to pay this debt. He said, you are the one I'm loaning the money to, and you are the one who is going to pay this obligation. Now, that was a true banker when he looked at character and loaned on character more than he did on, on security. And, of course, later on, Taylor would become a director in the bank. I guess on the money he made out of the ice cream contract, because he didn't, he didn't do badly on it from what I can hear. The next banker in the Austin National that I remember of that I did much business with was with Jack Adams, and that must have been in the early 50s because I do remember that my friend Sterling Holloway moved down from Fort Worth in the early part of the 50s and came out in Westlake Hills to find a place to build his home, and I finally worked around with him and, and sold him a place where he built his home. And uh, we formed an association with each other in such a way that we, we did real well, all from then on out. But uh, uh, I remember that uh, I, I introduced Sterling to Jack Adams. Jack, uh, Sterling hadn't moved his bank business down to Austin yet at that time, and uh, I introduced him to Jack, and, uh, and a few months after that, well, Jack called me off to the side and said, Emmett, that's man Holloway that you brought to me from Fort Worth has uh, placed a rather substantial amount of money in our bank, and I want to thank you for bringing him in to us. Of course, Jack was always one to, to just, just help me out if, if he possibly could on anything. 
and I loved Jack just like I would my own brother. And he loaned me money like he wasn't my brother because if he had been my brother, he wouldn't have loaned me like he did without any security that he did do. Any story told by me about the Austin National Bank would not be complete without me at least putting and recognizing, putting in here and recognizing uh, Jim Hawley. Jim Hawley is now my my personal banker, and he's the grandson of Mr. E.C. Bartholomew, who was my benefactor in 1937, and his uncle, Gene uh, Bartholomew, who was my classmate. But anyway, the, uh, back about 1970 or 71, well, Harm Reed and, and uh, Bill Nolan and I found what we considered one of the finest buys that we, a man could make. We couldn't turn it down. It was a piece of land about five acres down at San Marcos. It uh, fronts on Highway 35. And we'd been put onto it by uh, a person who uh, who we couldn't turn down either. And the only trouble was it, it cost $50,000, and none of us had the $50,000. Well, Bill worked around. He thought maybe we could get it from the Austin National Bank. And so uh, we went in to, to see Jack Adams that morning at the Austin National Bank, and Jack was out of town. And uh, the time was getting by on us on making this deal. I think it was limited to one, one or two days. So... Uh, the secretary there said, Mr. Adams is gone, but now Mr. Jim Hawley back there, he's, in, he's been promoted up to where he's a, he's a loaning, lending officer now. said, you might go see him, and he might uh, talk to you about it. Well, we went back to, of course, Bill knew, knew Jim pretty well, and I, I knew of him, but uh, we went back there and sat down and, and told him what our proposition was, that we had this uh, piece of land down there that ought to be worth twice as much as 50000 we was paying for it, and we just had to have it, and... And uh, Jim just uh, jumped up and down and clapped his hands. It's the opportunity to loan uh, three such stalwart gentlemen as us uh, the $50,000. Well, it didn't take us but about eight years to pay it back. And I can see now why Jim lost a little interest in, in loaning me money any further along the line. But he has kind of lifted me up and carried me along. And I appreciate it just a whole lot. And I want to thank Jim in this, uh, in this tape. And I'm going to give him a copy of this, of this tape for his own historical records. I'm sure that... There are two incidents that happened in my life that <clears throat> have to do with the Austin National Bank that are personal, but I'm very proud of them in lots of ways. The first bank account <clears throat> that I ever opened was in 1920 when I, uh, Papa got the money for me to go to the, the first Boy Scout Jamboree in London, England. And we opened up an account in the Austin National Bank with, I believe, $250 that I had to go over there. I still have the bank book and have the deposits that I made there. And Papa wrote in the front of it the people who gave me the money to go. And I'm going to, I'll try to dictate that end of this tape when I get back home and I'll pick that up. Then there was another instance when my old Aunt Lizzie Williams died. She died in about 1923 or 24, somewhere along in there. Mama had been her guardian before her death, <coughs> excuse me, and was her legal representative after her death. And she had been doing her banking business with uh, the uh, Vermont Bank, which was located around on the on the uh, south side of 6th Street there, across from the Littlefield building, and it's called a First State Bank, I think, but everything, like I say, was known by the owners of the bank, or the, the president of the bank, and it was called the Vermont Bank. And Aunt Lizzie was a miser, and she's a rich woman, and she lived at, at the old Bugerhoff building where the Maria Antoinette is now located on 10th and Congress Avenue. She owned that building, and she owned quite a little bit of other property. She was worth over a quarter million dollars in those days, and that was a lot of money in those days. And it so happened that she had been uh, accumulating quite a little bit of cash in the, the Brahman Bank, and it ran around $80,000 in cash. And so when Mama became the uh, uh, legal representative and after, after Aunt Lizzie's death, well, Papa being a, a customer of the Austin National, he wanted Mama to move the account over to the Austin National, which they did do. 
it didn't stay in there long because uh, all uh, Aunt Lizzie didn't have any children, and her nieces and and nephews who were going to inherit her money, they had it all spent before Aunt Lizzie died. They knew that she was going to die a year ahead of time, and all of them knew that they were going to come into some money. And so they had uh, bought, bought automobiles and made arrangements to buy it, but uh, Papa did have Mama put the $80,000 or more in the Austin National Bank for a short time, and then it was dispersed through there. But that was a, a lot of money in those days, and I think for years and years that helped Papa's credit down there, and perhaps the rest of the Shelton Bar's credit, without us knowing why. Another event that took place, uh, several, oh, oh, it was way up in the, after the war, the Second World War, and I was sitting down out in Westlake Hill, and Mama had, as a part of Aunt Lizzie's inheritance, Mama had taken a whole bunch of diamonds that Aunt Lizzie had accumulated, and, there's, and, and on the market in those days, they were worth about $10,000. The Lord alone knows what they'd be worth now, but they, Aunt Lizzie was rather rich, and she, when diamonds first came out as jewelry, well, she bought quite a few of them in the 1880s and 90s when she was engaged in cattle driving. And so uh, she uh, had these diamonds left, and Mama knew about them, and so Mama took these as a part of her inheritance. And she had a, a batch of them in a, an old leather purse in, the, in her lockbox in the Austin National Bank in, uh, sometime in the, in, 18, in, in the 1950s. And I had sold Jack Eisenberg a, a piece of land out on Yopon Valley for uh, whatever it was, but anyway, I had a note of his for $1,800. And so I decided I was rich enough to buy some of these diamonds from Mama before her grandchildren talked her out of them. So I talked to Mama about it, and she said, all right, we'll get Bill Cohen. Now, Bill was a, a director in the Austin National Bank, I think, at the time, but he had his jewelry store still around on 6th Street there. And so we got, uh, Mama got these diamonds out of her, uh, out of the lockbox, and we went around and, and poured them out in front of Bill Cohen. And I picked out the two that I wanted to make a ring for my wife at that time, and then for, for my daughter-in-law, Emmett's wife. And... Uh, so Bill was going to tell us what they were worth and what I should pay Mama for them. So he looked at the two diamonds that I wanted, and they were nice diamonds, and they're still in existence. And he said, now, Emmett, and that's in front of my mother, he said, if I was going to buy these for resale, it wouldn't be worth but $1,400. But uh, you're buying them from your mother's re- as, 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 uh, not as wholesale. You're, you're buying them, uh, and if I sell them to you, I'd have to get $1,800 for them. So you ought to pay your mother $1,800. And uh, we let Bill make the trade for us, and and uh, we always loved the Cohen because uh, we loved him enough to where my youngest brother was named Harold Cohen Shelton after Mr. Joe Cohen. So I gave Mama this note for Jack Eisenberg's for her two diamonds for, for the $1,800. And, uh, of course, now, later on, Jack Eisenberg became a director in the Union Na- uh, National Bank over on, on 35. But uh, those instances, I think, would be somewhat of interest in this history about the Austin National Bank. There was another instance that had to do with the Austin National Bank that entered into my law practice at one time. There was a, they used to have a custom of some sort between the banks to where uh, around noon or in the afternoon well, well, they'd send runners, what they called runners, from one bank to the other to pick up some uh, uh, money for one reason or another. I don't know what the bank practices were, but anyway, there was a black boy that was working for the Capital National Bank, and he would go to the Austin National and been doing it for six or eight months and at noon or, and say, we want so much money. And uh, it might be the balance that they owed each other. But anyway, he, uh, this boy saw the possibilities of that situation because he, he didn't have any uh, written authority for that at all. They just trusted him, and they'd hand the money over to him, and he'd take it back to the bank. Well, he decided that he'd going to try out a little scheme of his own. So he went in the Austin National Bank one morning about 10 or 11 o'clock, and he said, we want $5,000 uh, in round numbers. And, and I think that's what it was. And, and so uh, they handed it to him without any equivocation. 
And uh, he walked out in front of the Austin National Bank, and there he had $5,000 that didn't belong to him, and he hadn't robbed the bank, and he didn't know what to do with it. He didn't figure this scheme was going to work, but it did. So he conceived the idea then that he better put some distance between him and the Austin National Bank and the Capital National Bowl. So he goes down to a car place and buys him $1,500 to $2,000 car, and he pays for it by pulling his $5,000 wad he had out and peeling off enough to pay for the car and, and leaving obviously a whole lot of money uh, that was unspent in front of the automobile people. Well, he gets in the car and takes out for California. Well, the automobile people didn't think that looked too good, uh, the black boy, his age, coming down there with that kind of money, and so they called the police station and told them what had happened, and the uh, police uh, uh, detective department said well, that nobody had reported the theft, nobody reported robbery, so there's nothing they could do about it. Well, of course, that evening when the books were closed at the Austin National, they come up 5,000 short, and they traced it back to this boy picking up the 5,000. So they uh, put out an alarm, and they picked the boy up when he got back out about as far as California, uh, as El Paso, and brought him back. And the bank hadn't been harmed very badly because they got the car back, and the boy hadn't spent more than a hundred or so dollars. And, and so then the question came up, what had he done is wrong? He hadn't robbed the bank with a pistol, He just and he hadn't uh, uh, done anything. They would just say, I, we want $5,000. And so the grand jury decided that the best way to do it was just to indict him for, for theft by false pretenses. Now, that was a very difficult thing to prove, and so Polk and I got into the case. The boy hired us, and so we did a little plea bargaining and let the boy have a suspended sentence and on, a, on a theft by false pretenses. That's the first time that had ever come up that I know of, and I think they stressed the law a little bit. But one thing that did happen, they, they didn't have runners coming down and say, we want money and hand it over to them without some sort of authority from then on. This will be a supplement placed on the tape on January the 2nd, 1988, having been engaged in real estate since about 1928 on the West Bank on Westlake Hills area, it's only natural that we should uh, have become engulfed in the uh, good fortune or tragedy, however you look at it, that took place in the early 1980s in the real estate market in Austin. The Austin National Bank did finance and loan us money to put on the Bull Mountain subdivision and some of the other matters there. It so happened that Joyce and I purchased a piece of property about 1978 with the help of the Austin National Bank. We sweated through the turmoil of making interest payments for five years. Then in 1983, we sold that land and we took a check into the Austin National Bank one morning for $1,700,000 some odd dollars. Most of the bankers then, the officers of the bank, were our personal friends. It was like a director's meeting when we made this deposit. Everyone was present to see us do so. We were able to pay off all of our debts, including taxes to the federal government that was amounted to the share of the national debt for 10 members of our family. We still have most of the balance of the rest. Because of her knowledge of real estate values on the West Bank, Joyce was made a director in the bank in Westlake Hills. I'm sure that most of the friends that I had in the Austin National Bank through the years would rest more easily in their grave if they knew now that the Austin National Bank owed me more than I owed them. And thus it will ever be.